in church, would you remain standing with me as we read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but Galilee is feeling like it's a long, long way off. Jesus' time there near the sea, his time in Perea, his time out on Mount Hermon. The world just seems to be zeroing in on Jerusalem. Jesus' attention is zooming in on Jerusalem. The cross is just days away. So if you gathered with us last week, you'll remember that Jesus and his disciples, they are headed towards Jerusalem from Bethany. That is that town on the eastern side, opposite side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. And Jesus and his disciples, they're headed into Jerusalem. And somewhere along this two-mile journey, Jesus gets hungry. He looks up and ahead, he sees a fig tree and leaf. It's out standing by the road. Jesus would have expected at this time of year a fig tree and full leaf. He would have expected to find some first early season figs there. They wouldn't be ripe. They wouldn't be ready for the harvest. But they would have been something edible that he could put into his belly for the day. Yet what we find is that as Jesus arrives, upon further inspection, he finds that the tree is barren. There are no fruit, fruit there at all. It's all leaves and no figs. So the Lord responds by cursing the tree. May you never produce any fruit ever again. This tree, of course, is Israel. It's a picture of God taking her and he planted her. He planted her in a beautiful place, what should have been a fruitful place, a place of abundance where they sat under the teaching of his word and the word of his prophets, and he had placed them there for the purpose of producing fruit. If ever there should have been a fruit-bearing nation in all the world, it should have been Israel, but she had not fulfilled her purpose. Instead, she had become a big, leafy tree. All the signs of outward holiness, all the signs of religion, but none of the fruit. They completely missed their purpose. God didn't desire leaves. He desired fruit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of faith fruit of justice and of love and of mercy, 
the fruit of an inward holiness. And more than anything else, that they would reflect his glory to all the earth. But Israel had failed at this. Now God is patient. God is loving. God is merciful. But the time had come and the curse had fallen. Jesus pronounced this curse upon these people. They would wither and they would die. A dead, fruitless, withered fig tree. Rooted for nothing but the fires of hell. I left you last week with the words of Jesus in John 15 where he told them that I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. But if anyone does not abide in me, he is taken away and he withers. And then he is gathered together and he is thrown into the fire. Dear friends, I pray that you took this morning very seriously. That the God of the universe, he is looking at your life and he is seeking fruit, not leaves, not a name for yourself. Not outward religion, not church attendance. He seeks fruit. Go ahead and stand to your feet, please. We return to this very same day in Mark's gospel, chapter 11. We begin in verse 15. This is the word of God. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, we need to hear your voice above all others. And we know that it takes your supernatural working to give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. So we've come before you this morning, Father, as a people that are desperate to hear the word from your lips, but desperate that you would give us the ears, the ability to rightly hear and receive and believe. Otherwise, Father, we will walk out of here as big, leafy, fruitless trees. Father, use us to your glory. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So, uh, begins like this, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. So after the encounter with the fruitless fig tree, Jesus and his disciples, they continue on. They're not going to allow the lack of breakfast to stop them. They come down off the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, and up through the eastern side of Jerusalem. Son of David coming into the city of David on the week of Passover, no less. So they come to Jerusalem, and they enter the temple, and Jesus makes a beeline straight for the temple. He was never going to go anywhere else. Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, he was coming to take the pulse of Israel. This is where he was going to go. The very center of Israel, the center of their relationship with God. You see, church, if you were to go back and survey the history of Israel, what you will find very quickly is that as the temple goes, so goes Israel. You can look back over the history of the Old Testament, and you'll find that that temple, the place which replaced the tabernacle in the wilderness, that place where God chose to dwell with man, this truly is a remarkable thing, that the God of the universe, the God who we can never escape from the presence of, yet he would allow his presence to be most fully known, allow his glory to reside within a place with sinful man, this place that would be filled with his glory, the glory of God filling the house of God. This was to be a place of worship. 
be a place of sacrifice. It was to be a place where people came and offered themselves and their offerings before God, where they confessed their sin, where they seeked assurance that he was, in fact, their God, and they were still his people, all before the presence of the glorious God. And I, I pray that you never lose your sense of awe and wonder at this truth, that the God of the universe that lacks nothing, the God of the universe that needs nothing, the God of the universe which would be every bit justified for the destruction of every single last one of us welcomes men into his presence. And yet we know that he does so on very specific terms. At this point in a very specific place, namely his temple. So if you want to know about the true heart of a people, if you want to know how do they receive this gift, how do they relate to this God, how do they respond to this offer of God of the universe coming to dwell with them, if you want to know how do how do men view themselves and how do they view this God of the universe? Then you look to the way in which they worship. How do they approach? How do they worship? How do they kneel before the God of the universe? As Israel goes, so goes their temple. And so in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we know that they then too were big, fruitless fig trees. They had some of the outward signs of religion, and yet their hearts were far from God. Even when they said the right words, even when they brought the right offerings, their hearts were far from God. We know that God had sent prophets to warn them of this, and we know that their hearts were revealed in the fact that they mistreated these prophets. They beat them, calling for many of their lives. We know that they rejected God. They rejected God's warnings to turn back, and we know that God had told them, I'm raising up a nation called Babylon, and they were going to come, and they were going to destroy this place, but they thought that they were safe because they had the temple of God. And yet, just as God had promised, Ezekiel witnesses as the glory of God leaves up out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, and out to the east over the Mount of Olives. The glory of God left his temple so that the Babylonians could come in, they could capture Jerusalem, and they could destroy his temple. They could lay it low. The temple was no more. This very centerpiece of Jewish life. There were these two main things to the Jewish people. It was the law and it was the temple. They had made a joke of the law. They had completely disregarded the true heart of the law. And now they had lost the temple. No longer could they come into the temple. No longer could they come into the dwelling place of God. No longer could they presume to come into the presence of God while they were disregarding the law of God. He allowed the temple to be utterly destroyed, to be completely wiped out. And yet, as we know, God in his faithfulness and his mercy, he would continue by the work of his Holy Spirit to hold fast to a faithful remnant. He had promised that he would allow them to return. And just as promised, he did. He allowed the temple to be rebuilt under Zerubbabel. He allowed the law to be read publicly under Ezra. And as we come to the end of the New Testament, things are starting to look up. The people of God are issuing a new commitment, new oaths, new agreement that they're going to hold fast to the covenant of God. Finally, the people of God are going to be in the place of God, worshiping at the temple of God, obeying the laws of God. And no sooner is that temple uh, prayed over, no sooner is that temple dedicated, than the people immediately fall right back into their sin. So we come to the close of the, new te- close of the Old Testament with the people right back where they started, sinning against God, disregarding his law, and yet worshiping in a temple, a smaller temple than Solomon's temple, a temple in which God's presence had not come to show itself visibly, was not filled with the glory of the Lord like before, but we're left longing for something. We're left at the end of the Old Testament wondering, surely God isn't going to continue to entrust this same thing to these men over and over and over again. Surely God isn't going to allow his glory to dwell with these men that continue to fall for the same old traps. And then with the opening of the New Testament, after four centuries of silence, 400 years of no new word, no new visitation from God, no new prophecies. We come and we find that the people have taken it upon themselves to expand upon this temple. A big, beautiful edifice. Even larger than the original. Nothing but leaves on a fruitless tree. 
And they've taken a law of God. They've expanded that too. They've had ordinances and traditions and hand washings and rituals and don't carry a fig any further than this and don't take more than 300 steps and don't light a fire. And all these rules, just more leaves on a fruitless fig tree. We find that these people, they have taken it upon themselves. Taken it upon themselves to, to try and honor God, to worship God in accordance with what they believed would be pleasing to him. They've twisted his law in a way that they just laid burden upon burden upon their ordinary men. And we saw Jesus' response to this in much of his Galilean ministry. We see Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and the scribes and those that came up out of Jerusalem over this issue of the law. He told them, this is not the law of my father. This is not the will of my father that you follow the ordinances of men. The commandments of men instead of the commandments of God. And now he was marching straight into the temple. Again, the very heart of Israel, to take the pulse of Israel. Now he had been there the night before. Remember on Palm Sunday, the so-called triumphal entry. As Jesus came in, the great pomp and circumstance, the men waving the palm branches, laying their cloaks on the ground, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the crowd disappeared. Jesus went into the temple. He knew what he was going to find, and he found exactly that. He turned around. Headed back to Bethany, and now he's back. This is Monday, the Monday of the Passover. He's cursed the fig tree, and now he's headed straight into the temple. I have to imagine that he was looking back. He was thinking back to all his precious times in those temple, in his father's house, when he had been there as a boy, sitting before the teachers, asking questions and learning about the law. And yet now he marches in. It says this, and he entered. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And so you know this story. It stands out to you because it seems so very contrary to Jesus' nature. We talked about this last week. Jesus is a helper. Jesus is a healer. Jesus is a man that brings dead people back to life. And yet we see him here, first cursing a fig tree and now turning over tables and shaking out money and chasing people out of the temple. It seems so very contrary to the Jesus we were told about in Sunday school. But dear friends, this is a healthy reminder that Scripture and Scripture alone must inform for us who Jesus Christ is. Not our hearts, not our minds, not our emotions. You're free to make whatever Jesus your heart wants to make. But he is worthless, he is dead, and he will not save you. We come to the Jesus Christ of the Scriptures, and we know that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. And it is right and it is good that God would display his wrath upon those that would not rightly worship him. Those that would desecrate his holy temple. So we do know this isn't the first time that we've seen this. Back in John 2, we read that during the first Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry, he also came to Jerusalem, and he found a very similar scene there. There were people selling animals and exchanging money, and Jesus then made a whip of cords, and he drove the people from the temple. And there's some people that will tell us that this is the same encounter. They'll, they'll tell us that this is the same encounter and that what John was focused on, because John was more focused on theology than chronology, that he just took this event from the end of Jesus' life and he asserted it at the beginning of his gospel. And that certainly could be true, but there's enough differences here that it doesn't seem like that's the case to me. It seems like this is a different situation. This would match Jesus' pattern. Jesus would bookend his ministry like this, if you imagine, wouldn't he? Coming in once first at the beginning and saying, this is not what my father desired. Cleansing the temple. And coming back year after year in his great patience, year after year witnessing the same thing. And then at the very end, right before the laying down of his life, he made clear one more time that God's judgment was upon their empty religion, their false worship, and cleaning it out yet again. So Jesus, he enters into the temple. And I want you to try and picture this in your mind. I lost the first group on this. I'm not going to lose you. You're the smarter crowd, I think. Don't tell them. So what you find is that the entire temple complex, it's oriented to the east. So our 
our sanctuary is built like a good football field. It runs north and south, okay? East is that way. So the entire temple complex, it's oriented to the east. So that if you're coming down off the Mount of Olives, you're looking, you're looking in to the, to the gates, to the doors that enter into the temple. So you might do well to picture, like, this is the Mount of Olives. I'm no, like, I don't want to be on the Mount of Olives, but here I am. I have been on the Mount of Olives. This is the Mount of Olives. And picture those doors as the door to the temple, okay? So the entire thing is oriented to the east. And there's a number of possible reasons for this. Could it be something about the rising of the sun showing the blessing of God coming upon Israel? Could it be something about as we enter into the temple, we turn our back to the east and we go towards the west, and that this is a picture of God's people leaving exile? You remember Babylon was in the east and Jerusalem was in the west. But Egypt was in the, the west, so I don't, I don't know, right? Maybe that's not it. Maybe it has something to do with the Garden of Eden. And that's my guess. As we look to that first tabernacle, that first place where God dwelt with man, freely with man, and yet we know that there in that place, man sinned. He rebelled against God, and God had told him that the wages of sin would be death. You eat of this fruit, you shall die. And yet we know that he did not demand his life on that day. He would have been right. He would have been just to wipe out all mankind on that day. It wouldn't have been hard. There was only two. But to wipe out all mankind on that day. And yet instead, in his mercy, we see the very first pictures of Jesus Christ right there in Genesis 3. As he promises that from woman will come a man that will crush the head of the serpent. Salvation through Jesus Christ. The picture right there. And yet man was under a curse. He was stained by sin. No longer could he walk freely in God's presence. And so God takes him out of the garden. You remember this. I'll read these words. God drove out the man out of the east of the garden of Eden and placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I think this must be it. Because you remember that there's much within the holy of holies in the temple that looks like the garden. And I don't have time to fully unpack that. But not the least of which is the veil, the curtain that separated man from God. It had cherubim within it. And even within the holy of holies with the cherubim guarding over the mercy seat. It seems clear to me that what God had done in calling Moses to orient the tabernacle towards the east. And then the temple that came after that oriented towards the east. It was a picture of this. The first tabernacle, the garden, shown in the tabernacle, the shadow of the garden, by facing it to the east. So you've got this temple, and it's facing east, all right? So those doors there, picture that, going into the temple. Now in the center of the temple, the very core of all of it, is the Holy of Holies. In Solomon's day, that was where the ark was. Again, you had these cherubim with their wings extended out over it. You had the mercy seat there, and that's where the presence of God dwelt. Now, of course, you had a curtain that separated it because man cannot come before God and live. And so it was only once a year on the Day of Atonement that the high priest, that he could come in there and he could offer blood for the sins of the people. Only the high priest, only once a day, only through that curtain. Now, this was still the case even in Jesus' time, even though the ark wasn't there anymore. The ark was lost sometime around when the Babylonians came in. We don't know whether it was during the siege, whether it was before the siege. Some people think that maybe Jeremiah buried the thing under the Temple Mount. Maybe it's in the wilderness somewhere. Maybe Indiana Jones has it. I don't really know. But we just know that it wasn't there. There was probably just a, there was a giant rock that was there. It was meant to, meant to illustrate the ark. But even still, during Jesus' day, within the Holy of Holies, the most central part, the place where God's presence dwelled, only the high priest could go and only on the Day of Atonement. Outside of the Holy of Holies, stay with me, you're the smart ones. Outside the Holy of Holies is the holy place. The holy place could only be entered in by the priests. There you would find the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. That's where the priests would go, and they would represent man before God. 
just outside the holy place was the court of the priests. In this place, both the priests and the Levites could be. They would receive the sacrifices from the people. They would sacrifice the animals. They would spread the blood on the altar. They would burn the animal upon the altar. Only the priests and the Levites were allowed there. Just east of there, there was the court of Israel. This was a long, skinny court, like 200 feet by 16 feet. Now, in this court, only clean Jewish males could go. It was there that they would hand off their sacrifices to the priests and to the Levites, and they could witness what happened there upon that altar. If you step just outside of that, there's the court of women. Now, clean Jewish women could go there. Men could go there, too. Funnily enough, what they found is that men and women worshiping together didn't work, and so eventually the women moved up into the balconies. But this was the court of women where clean Jewish women could go to worship and to pray, and it was there that you would found the offering boxes. Not, I imagine all that dissimilar to what we have. You can imagine a widow, perhaps, putting two small mites in a box like that. So you've got the court of women. You've got the court of Israel. You've got the court of priests. You've got the place only the priests can go. You've got the place only the high priests can go. You getting the picture? The closer you get to the presence of God, the more pure, the more holy, the more clean the people were intended to be. Just as with the tabernacle, when God was describing very strict details about how the tabernacle was meant to be built, the closer you got to the, the holy of holies, the more precious the metal was meant to be as you move from bronze to silver to gold. But outside the entire thing, there was a ginormous court, 1,600 by 1,000 feet. That's 35 acres for you grass farmers. A 35-acre tract, a court, was called the court of Gentiles. Those people that were not clean, they were not, either they were unclean or they had not gone through the proselyte um, process of being circumcised and cleansed and becoming a Jew. This is where they were restricted to their worship. You with me, Andrew? I knew you were. So, the reason why all this matters is because when Jesus shows up and it says that he goes into the temple, he's talking about the temple courts. Jesus wasn't going into the Holy of Holies. He wasn't going into the holy place. He wasn't going to the court of women or the court of Israel. He was coming into the court of the Gentiles, the place where the Gentiles were restricted, and they couldn't go any further. In order to leave the court of the Gentiles and go into the court of women, there was a sign. It was the gate beautiful, and there was a sign there. They found a, a, a stone that reads these words. They would have had it both in Latin and in Greek. Not Latin. In Greek and in uh, Aramaic, probably, yeah. So it says this. <clears throat> no foreigner is to go beyond this balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. You go through this gate, you die. So this is where you're restricted to go. So this is where Jesus goes then, out into this external courtyard, the court of Gentiles. No one was allowed to go inside that court. If you did, if you went into the court of women or the court of Israel, it was a big deal. You'll remember that Paul, in Acts 21, that he was accused of bringing an Ephesian, a Gentile, into that court. That was what the ruckus was all about was that Paul had allowed someone that wasn't clean enough, that wasn't Hebrew enough, that wasn't Jewish enough to enter in to the court of women. That was what all the, all the thing was about. And so Jesus didn't go there. He goes to the court of Gentiles. And again, the reason this matters is because he is there when he finds all of this. All the stuff he found back in John 2, he finds again on this day. The people buying, the people selling, the people trading. Now, you know why this is. Any of you that have any, spent any time in the scriptures, you know what happened here, that God had called his people to come from all over three times a year for the great feast. The people were trying to follow after what God had called them to do. 
that they would come. Many people, they hadn't even returned to Israel. You remember after the exile, some people didn't even come back in Israel. So some of these people, they were traveling from great distances, and they had to bring with them the sacrifices. Some of those sacrifices, a Passover lamb. Now, traveling with animals wasn't a whole lot easier then than it is today. In addition to that, once you got there, the animal you had must be clean. It must be unblemished. It must be perfect. It must be spotless in order for the priest to receive it and to, and to receive the sacrifice. But these are just men. These are ordinary men who are receiving this. So you can just imagine what would happen if you come all this way and you got an animal and you think it's clean. It may well be clean. But the judge, you ever been to a livestock judge? I mean, they're just dudes. They're all over the map. Maybe they find something unclean in this animal, and now you're stuck in addition to this. <coughs> there would have been a temple tax that was due in this month. The month of Nisan is what, script, or what um, the Mishnah tells us when they were taking it. So once a year, the temple tax was due. It was a half a shekel. Now, that's not a whole lot of money. It's about two days' wage for the average dude. But many people, they wouldn't have traded in shekels. And so when they came into Israel, they brought whatever their money was, and they traded it for a Tyrian shekel. So what was happening here is when men, was, men were making these, these transactions, there was nothing inherently evil about these transactions. It was making it where men could travel easily. They could travel into town, be guaranteed that their sacrifices would be received, be guaranteed they had the right kind of coinage, and they were to go in and worship God exactly as he had commanded. These commandments came straight out of Scripture. The priests didn't make up these. And so these men were there, and maybe they were making a little bit of money. God does not, I imagine God didn't have a huge problem with men maybe even making a little bit of money. Look, you raised this lamb. You ought to be compensated for it, a little bit of something, right? So, but this is what's going on there. So we read, but Jesus enters into the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So there seem to be a couple of issues at play here, and we're not told exactly what drove Jesus to outrage. Now, he's going to recite some scripture in a minute that's going to give us a hint, and we'll work through that at the proper time. But some pastors, they believe that the biggest issue here was the exchange rate, that these men were taking advantage of honest, sincere worshipers, and that's what drove Jesus to fury. That was his main concern here. And there is evidence in Jewish liter literature for this. There is evidence that, that it's much like going to an Astros game, and they charge you eight bucks for a Coke. I mean, if you want a Coke, that's what you got to pay, right? They've got a monopoly on the thing, and that that's what had happened here. These men that sold in the temple courts, they had a monopoly because you didn't get a seat in there unless the priest or the high priest allotted it to you. In addition to this, because the high priest knew this, he would turn away any animal that wasn't bought for one of his buddies. So if you brought a buddy, a, a, a lamb, perfectly pure, perfectly unblemished, you bring it all the way into Israel, you bring it all the way into Jerusalem, you bring it all the way to the temple, no, no, you got to go buy one for my buddy Joshua over there. Then they can charge whatever they want, and they can kick some up the ladder to the priests. In addition to that, the exchange rates were exorbitant. I mean, there would have been an acceptable change. I mean, think about the way we work with money today. You know how much a shekel is today. You know how much a pound is today. You know how much money exchanges for. Yet during the time of Passover, when these people were coming and he had them trapped, they would have driven up the exchange rates. So you had these men. They're getting rich. They're fattening themselves. They're getting wealthy off the sincere and biblical worship of people that are just coming and trying to come into the presence of God rightly to not offend the living God. Not just the priests, but even the high priests. There's some evidence that at that time, this court of Gentiles, it wasn't referred to often as the court of Gentiles. Instead, it was referred to as the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the high priest. These were his people representing him. He was getting rich by allowing these men to take advantage of these worshipers that came. So yes, I do think that Jesus would have been enraged by that. I think he was enraged by that. But I don't think that's the only thing. And here's why. Because what you find in Mark 11 is that he drove out everyone. It says he drove out the sellers and the buyers. Now, you don't find that in John 2. 
In John 2, it only talks about the people that were selling. I think that's one of the reasons I maybe believe these are two different events. But in this instance, he's driving out absolutely everybody, the people that are taking advantage and the people that are being taken advantage of. Now, there's some pastors that say this is evidence that you've got to guard yourself and make sure nobody takes advantage of you. I don't think that's it. I think his problem is something so much deeper than this. Yes, God does hate dishonest scales. Yes, God does want us to do business fairly and rightly. But even if this trade was fair, it did not belong here. Dear friends, you must understand, there are things that are absolutely acceptable out in the world that do not belong in the house of God. They're not outwardly evil. They're not commanded against in Scripture, and yet they have no place in the temple of God. The issue is not with the way in which the trade was happening. He said, do your trade, do it fairly, but don't do it here. Now, there's some evidence that this was a recently new occurrence. There's some evidence in some old Jewish literature that perhaps they were previously trading on the Mount of Olives, which would have been fine, but that now they had moved it into the court, again, because you got the people trapped. And you can just imagine the scene, all the tables, all the animals, all the money changers. Here in Passover, we read that something like 250,000 lambs would have been sacrificed on a day like this. I don't know how, I mean, on a week like this. I don't know how accurate that is, but you're talking about a lot of animals and a lot of people and a lot of money changers and a lot of animal sellers there in this place. And all here in this only spot where the Gentiles could come. Again, they couldn't go through the gate beautiful. They couldn't go any closer to God. This was the only place they had to come and pray, to worship, to honor, to pay their respects to the living God. And they had just trampled it completely. They had made it into a marketplace, an open-air market. This is an abomination before God. So he's furious with the buyers, with the sellers, with everybody. So he drives them all out. Did he make another whip of cords? I mean, I don't know, maybe, probably. There's a lot of rope around. He makes something, and he drives them all out. Again, not just the sellers, the buyers, the whole transaction. It should not be happening here. Dear friends, do you guard your worship? Do you guard your time of prayer like this? But he, he drives them all out. Verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So, I mean, look, if people are selling there, what's it a big deal to go passing through the temple, right? So apparently what happened was they had turned the court of Gentiles into a thoroughfare as well. So if you're on the eastern side of the city and you want to go to the western side, just cut through the temple. That's the quickest way, right? And again, why would you care? It's already noisy in there. It's already loud in there. There's already people making money in there. What's the big deal if I carry a bushel of wheat through? Sorry, I know you're praying, but i got to get to the other side, and this is the quickest path. Dear friends, we can't treat the house of God like it's nothing. We can't treat the house of God just like the rest of the world and expect other people that don't care anything about the house of God to treat it any differently. We can't treat our time of worship just like it's the rest of the world, just like it's any other ordinary secular time, and expect the people to respect what we're doing, to not come and trample what we're doing and to come marching through what we're doing. But that's what was happening. So Jesus stops them, stops them completely. And this truly is remarkable. Again, you can say that maybe we're speaking in hyperbole here, or maybe Jesus didn't literally stop everybody, but the Scripture says he would not allow anyone to carry anything through. 35 acres. Look, if y'all decided to just scatter right now, I could maybe get to about three of you before you got out of here. I couldn't control a space this big. 35 acres, Jesus has complete and total control. He shuts the whole thing down. Flipping tables, dumping out money, chasing people away. Nobody else is coming in. Nobody else is going out. He shuts the whole thing down. I think this is a miracle. Again, maybe not. Maybe, maybe there's some kind of hyperbole here. Maybe it's a figure of speech. Maybe it wasn't really everyone. But I think it was. And again, you'll remember that back in Acts 21 when Paul was accused of bringing a man into the temple where he didn't belong, that he ended up getting arrested for it because there was a ruckus, there was a dust-up. But nobody comes. 
Right on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, there's a fortress. It's called the Antonio Fortress. It's named after Mark Antony. There would have been Romans there. They would have been just looking for an opportunity to come in and squash something. That's their, their number one job was to make sure there's no noise. Just make sure people don't lose their mind and we don't get ourselves thrown out. We don't get ourselves beheaded. And so surely something would have caught their attention. Was it because the people were so in love with Jesus for what he was doing? They were tired of being taken advantage of? They were tired of the courts being trampled? So maybe there was some protection there? I, I don't really know. But it is truly remarkable and terrifying, the scene of Jesus Christ with such zeal for his father's house, chasing the people out and allowing nobody else to walk through. He'd already pronounced a curse upon the fig tree, and now he was cleansing out this temple. I don't know that cleansing is the right word, though. Cleansing maybe would give us the idea that he was cleansing it so it could continue to be used as it currently was, and that was not the case. This was not a reformation. We know in Mark 13 that Jesus would be walking through with his followers, and they were just, it was a glorious temple. By the way, it, it wasn't done yet. They would continue building on this temple until about the year 64 A.D., just six years before it would be destroyed. How do you love that? You build on a temple for 80 years, and then it gets destroyed just six years later. That's the way this thing played out. But here at this time, about the year 30 A.D., Jesus tells his disciples, you better look and enjoy it while you can, because it won't be here for long. It's going to be destroyed wholly and completely, not one stone left upon another. So Jesus wasn't cleansing this temple so that then it could be rightly used. He was cleansing this temple, and it was going to be destroyed. I believe in part he was doing this because, you know, it's so easy when the destruction comes to blame it on everybody else. It would have been in the Jewish people's nature to look around and go, yeah, of course God destroyed it. There was too many Gentiles here. Of course God destroyed it. We allowed the Romans to hang out too long. And so Jesus is making clear to them, you believe that you own this temple and you have exclusive access to God. You believe you have a monopoly on God. You believe that you are right with God, that you can act like devils, that you can trample the Gentiles, that you can disregard their right to come before the living God. You can live like the rest of the world, but because of your bloodlines, you have some right standing before God. You must know that he rejects you and he rejects your worship. It is an abomination to him. He was making clear, no, 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 no. You are the ones that have no place here, that your hearts are too far from God. I know you've got the law. I know you've got the prophets. I know you've got the ordinances, but your hearts are too far. You're a big, fruitless fig tree, and so my God rejects you. And friends, I, I've determined, the more I've studied this, the more I've thought about this, that look, I know that there is no repentance and there is no faith and there is no changed life apart from the supernatural working of God. But at the same time, I, I feel for these people because you've got to understand that they thought they had it, man. Like not every single one of these woke up in the morning and twisted their evil mustache and said, you know what, I don't care about God, I'm bigger than God. I've got to believe the vast majority of these people, they thought they were truly pleasing God. They thought the world was the problem. They thought that these laws, look, they had added their own laws. Surely God must love that. He's a God of law. Who wouldn't love me putting a fence around his law to make sure nobody even gets any closer? And look, you got all these filthy Gentiles here. God doesn't love the Gentiles, does he? Why would he care? We're his chosen people. I mean, I'm imagining these people really believed they were doing church, man. Like, we're getting it right. And they fully expected the Messiah to come and give them a big old pat on the back. That was their understanding of Ezekiel. That just as the glory of the Lord had left out the east over the Mount of Olives, so the glory of the Lord would return, returning to his temple. They believed that the Messiah would come, that he would cleanse the temple. In the words of R.C. Sproul, they believed that he would cleanse the temple of the Gentiles, not for the Gentiles. No idea. No idea. They thought they were fixing to get a big old attaboy. Here, have your temple back. Go back to worshiping me. I've chased out all these unclean people. And instead, he turns on them with a whip. Man, I'd love to have seen it. 
except the fact that I've probably been one of the ones who was chasing Alan. They believed they had a monopoly on God. They believed they had the worship right. They believed surely God was coming to chase these outsiders out. Verse 17, but Jesus says to them, he begins teaching them, and he says to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? So for those with hardened hearts, this teaching will mean nothing. Those with eyes to see and ears to hear, they would later fully understand. He takes them to the scriptures, Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Dear friends, Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, when he wants to teach them what worship is meant to look like, when he wants to teach them the way in which they can safely approach the God of holiness, he takes them to the scriptures. There's a lot of talk in the world right now about how worship is supposed to look. There's always been talk. Like, what is worship supposed to look like? What is worship supposed to sound like? A hot topic right now is who's allowed to play what role in worship. Dear friends, the scripture's the only answer. Doesn't matter what I think. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter what our traditions think. Doesn't matter what the consensus thinks. Doesn't matter whose voice is the loudest. What does God say? Because there's only God that is worship. And there's only God that we must fear offending. So he takes them straight to the scriptures. He's telling them, you've completely missed the whole point. My father's desire was that this would be a place of prayer, a place of contemplation, a place of just deep sorrow as you confess your sins, as you come into the presence of God, as you bask in his glory. You've completely missed this. You've turned it into nothing but a merchant shop. Just noise and chatter and all these things that belong out in the world. You've allowed the world to infiltrate this place that God had set apart. And it shows that you totally disregard. You believe that you have a place before God. You don't understand the incredible gift it is that the God of the universe would allow you to come into his presence, to speak words to him that he would hear with his ears, and he would grant you that which you wish. You have no idea what a blessing this is. Dear friends, that's why I say you want to know where a man's heart is, you watch his worship. How does he approach the living God? Does he disregard it? Is it a thing he does when he has nothing better to do? Is it a thing that he does whenever the worship tickles his ears? Is it a thing he does when the worship meets his needs? Is it a thing he does whenever all the rest of the world isn't dragging him in ten different places? Or does he wake up every day and say, thank you, God, that you would allow me to worship you. I cannot wait. You men did not do this. You were too busy making this into a market. And he said, my father has said this is going to be a house of prayer. If the dedication of the temple is Solomon in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 7, we read that it would be a house of sacrifice. And the sacrifices were happening, not with the right hearts, but the sacrifices were happening. But we also read that Solomon, he praises God and he says, God, my deepest desire for this temple is this would be a place when people pray towards this place that you would receive and that you would hear their prayers. And they had completely abandoned this. How could you? How could anybody pray in the middle of this? How can anybody pray in the middle of all this noise, in the middle of all this trampling, in the middle of all these people coming and going and passing through? No reverence whatsoever for what was happening there. No joy in their heart for the fact that God would welcome these people too, the Gentiles, into his place. So he's telling them, you've, you've completely trampled that. You've completely missed the, missed the point of it all, and you've allowed the world to creep in. He says his father's house would be a place of prayer and a place where the nations are welcomed. This was God's plan from the very beginning. That through Father Abraham, the world would be blessed. The plan was never to stop with the Jews. The plan was never to stop with Israel. They had completely missed this. Where did all these people come from? God's saying, because my plan's working, stupid. I called them here. This was always my point. I'd send prophets to Nineveh to tell the people to turn. Why? Because it was my desire that the people would turn and they would come to me. My desire is that the people of the world, they're looking up in the stars and saying, I wonder what God is like. 
the people that had some sense of right and wrong in their heart, they're going, I wonder what, law, what God commands. They would see and go, these people know God. God has revealed himself to these people. He has spoken to these people. He dwells with these people. We want to be there. We want to be part of this. Dear friends, this should be us. Declaring to the Lord, there is a, to the world, there is a God and he is real. And he will welcome you. Now, he's got some guidelines. And you can't meet them. Only he can meet them. But that was the whole purpose for the temple. The temple wasn't meant to be a possession of Israel. It was meant to be a testimony, an invitation to the world. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56. The longer text goes like this, that God welcomes the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus desires for all time. He desires that through Israel, as he showed these very specific steps, yes, you must come to me in this way. He was giving him these outward laws, these, these ways in which they must, ma- must march towards him to reveal to them their own sinfulness, to reveal to them that he is not a God that can be come to willy-nilly. You come on his terms or you come not at all, but always preparing the way for something greater, always preparing the way for Jesus Christ. So he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He again quotes the Old Testament. This time it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now this surely would have caught their attention because in the text that comes after this in Jeremiah, he tells them that they need to divert their eyes to Shiloh and see what he did to that temple. See how he destroyed that temple. He's telling them, yes, destruction is coming upon this temple. And as I mentioned to you earlier, when Jesus says, you have made this a den of robbers, many people, they immediately think about those that are being taken advantage of. And again, I think to some degree that is true. But I also have this picture that a den of robbers would have been these caves in the side of mountains where men would have gone out and done evil things, and then they would have come there for safety, for security, to count their loot, right? I have this picture. I have to imagine what Jesus is saying is, you believe that you can go out there in the world and you can live like the devil, that you can come into my house and find yourself safe. You can hide behind the name of the living God. You can hide because of your bloodlines, and you believe you're safe acting just like the rest of the world out there. He's saying the unrepentant are not safe here. My God will pour his fury upon you. People didn't get it. Verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And so we read last week that the disciples heard it. This week, the chief priests and the elders and all these people heard it. What Steve Lawson says, I believe it's him, that says, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that squeals is the one you hit. You hit them. Dear friends, I want you to know that you're not the only one that sits there and listens to hard sermons and wants to squeal. I listen to some pretty heavy hitters during the week. Even as I preach here, I preach to myself. I hurt my own feelings more often than not. But even as I sit and I listen to some real heavy hitters and men with great zeal for the word of God, man, I'm asking, man, who told you you could read my mail? How in the world can you know me and do you know my son? It's like I'm standing exposed before the world. Anybody with the Holy Spirit and the word of God in their hand, they can just slice me open cold. So he launches this out there and they know, but they're afraid because the crowds are, they're in love with what Jesus is doing for now won't take long, Brother Bannon, but they knew that the crowd was 
The crowd was too big. The crowd was too boisterous. They were too on board with what Jesus was doing. And they knew. They knew that he was talking about them. And that's what the heart does, right? The heart that, the heart that's grown cold, the heart that is hardened, they always reject the messenger. They never reject the message. They always reject the messenger. They never receive the message. They always believe the problem is you. They go on the attack. That's the way it works, right? Andrew, you come to me with a sin in my life, and I immediately attack you because it's kind of hard to attack, Andrew, but I'll attack you for something. It's the way this thing works. And while we know that every single person will answer to God for the way in which they have worshipped him or not worshipped him, the way in which they have come into his presence or not come into his presence, every single person, you'll notice that Jesus Christ, he was so very merciful with prostitutes and tax collectors. Do you think there were no troubles in the world outside of Jerusalem? There was all manner of social ills. But he came to cleanse his father's house. Judgment comes first to the house of God. His judgment had come to his people. And every single one of those people will answer to God for the way in which they dealt with that which he had given. But there's going to be a greater judgment for those that will presume to leave. But friends, that's what terrifies me. Absolutely terrifies me that you would come into this place with a heart that truly longs to see God. You just want to be in the presence of God. You want to magnify the name of God. You want to rightly worship the living God in song and in study and in scripture reading and in prayer and in your Bible study. And you just want to see God. And you show up in this place and you're going, I wish that bald guy would get out of my way so I could see God. He fell to a stricter judgment. These men were going to answer to God for the way in which they had presumed to lead his people. And they were in the way. It is my goal that I would show up in this place and I would present to you the face of Jesus Christ and you would forget that I was ever here. That God's name would be magnified through whatever comes out of my lips. I know that's each of your desires. You go into your small groups, as you lead your families, as you study this word, as you share this word with your neighbors. Make much of him and little of me. And these people have done the exact opposite. They spread out like a big, beautiful laurel tree and said, look at me now and I'll prove it. Isn't the kingdom of God fortunate to have me on their team? Verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. So the term go out here, the Greek verb here, it's, it's in the imperfect tense, meaning it was on, ongoing. Like this was a pattern, right? He'd come into the city, then you go out of the city. And it's almost like this thing was just a pressure cooker, right? And he said, let me just remove myself for a minute. He wasn't going to lay down his life one second sooner than, re- than it was appointed. And so he would remove himself each night until the night of his arrest. He would go back out of the city. Okay, I've done it again. I've got some points to make now, and um, I don't know how much time we got. All right. So, again, we know that Jesus wasn't cleansing the temple and saying, okay, now you precious little babies have another try. We know that the temple would be destroyed, and we know that as Jesus sat with the Samaritan woman out there on the, out there by Jacob's well, he, he told her that, there's going to come a time when my father doesn't desire worship on this mountain or on that hill. My father desires those that, wor- those that worship in spirit and in truth. We know that Jesus Christ himself came as the tabernacle. That the word came to dwell, to tabernacle, to be with men. We know that in the very last days, Revelation 21 tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no temple because the temple will be God and the Lamb. We know that it is in him that we will most fully see God. We will dwell with God. We will be with God. The thing that our heart must long for more than anything else. And yet we know that even now, 
We know that in those last days when we will be made completely clean and there will be nothing to separate us from God, not our sin. We won't need an intercessor at that point. We just come straight in before Jesus Christ. We see him face to face. No longer is our sin in the way. No longer is our sin a problem. We know that even now in his first coming, we know that he fulfilled all of this. We know that he fulfilled all of this. Turn with me to Romans 10. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. That's okay. But we know that Jesus Christ, right, in, in, in coming, right, fully God becoming fully man, I begin in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The whole point before this, building up, was the sufficiency of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. No longer blood of bulls, no longer the blood of lambs, no longer the blood of sacrifices. He is a once and for all sacrifice. He has done it all. There is no more need. I don't have to come from some great distance with a lamb. I don't have to hope that this lamb is approved by you. Jesus Christ, in his blood, I'm now able to enter in into the presence of God. It's by his blood. We have this confidence. Verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. The original curtain, the original veil, it separated man from God. This new curtain, this new veil, it welcomes men into God. It is the path into God. So as you go through, as the high priest on the day of atonement, he would go through the veil, through the blood of bulls. It was no longer the case. That is no longer the case. It is the blood of Jesus Christ going through the flesh of Jesus Christ into the presence of God. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus Christ, the great high priest, better than any other high priest. Every other high priest had to offer, for the, offer sacrifices for his own sins. There was no perfect high priest except for Jesus Christ. And so you, you're seeing all of this coming together, all of the ordinances and all of the law and all of the worship and all of the sacrifices. And the one that comes between man and God, the one that represents man to God, it's Jesus Christ. And we see the fullness of everything in him. And I pray that you see this. I do, I'm afraid of the day that God's going to bring us to teach through Romans, but I'm ready for the day that God's going to teach us to pre preach through Hebrews because there's such incredible mystery and beauty and just incredibleness there as we see everything coming together perfectly in Jesus Christ. The whole thing just screams out of us. He is greater. He is greater. He is greater. He is enough. He is sufficient. He is everything. Don't look anywhere else. Dear friends, I told you before, Christianity is a perfect religion for dummies. You don't have to look anywhere else. Just look at Jesus. Like there's a one singular answer to everything. You wake up in the morning, look at Jesus. You lay down at the end of the day, look at Jesus. Your wife leaves you, look at Jesus. You're broke, look at Jesus. You have great joy, look to Jesus. You need cleansing of your sin, look at Jesus. You need to know God, you look at Jesus. You need your worship rightly ordered, you look at Jesus, everything. You're looking to him, you're looking to him, you're looking to him. And then he goes on, verse 22. Let us draw near. Because of this, because of all this, because of who Jesus is, because of who he is on your behalf, you, look, you, you can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We have been cleansed and purified. Dear friends, I don't feel clean most of the time. I don't feel pure most of the time. But he is saying here that our bodies will be washed with pure water and our evil conscience, which is always calling out to us and always taunting us and always telling us you can't be enough, you can't be clean enough, you can't cleanse yourself, you can't go into that place, you can't handle the word, you can't dwell with God. He's saying through Jesus Christ you can come with great confidence because he is not an Indian giver. He doesn't make these promises and then take them back. He doesn't fall short. He goes all the way in Jesus Christ. 
So he says that now you can have this great confidence. And we know that even now the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So in a very real way, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm not to do anything to this temple that I would not do to a physical temple. And I'm not to do anything to you that I would not do to an actual temple. But he goes beyond that. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to one another's. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's saying the day is drawing near. I, I, I have this habit as a preacher sometimes to say, like, you know, if you can't honor and worship and obey and truly magnify God's name today, what are you going to do when things get tough? And I forgot that the war is already on. It's not just about the external circumstances. It's about the spiritual warfare that rages all about us. It's about the enemy that roams and seeks to devour one of us. The day is near. Uh, how near? I don't know. Near today than it was yesterday. But the day of Jesus Christ's return draws near and things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And we're in the middle of this war. But he's saying there, because of this, because of all that Jesus Christ is for you, because of all that you can be in Jesus Christ, because you will be made clean, because you can come to God in great confidence, because you yourself are a temple of the Holy Spirit, let us then come together. So many preachers, they take this text and they turn it into a nothing other than a, y'all better come to church. It's more than that. The people were at church, and they stunk at it. The one another's meant nothing to them. They were trampling the courts of the outsiders. They were selling dove and pigeons and changing money in the, in the court of the outsiders. They didn't care anything about the one another's. Because while we ourselves are a temple of the Holy Spirit, there's a very real way in which we are also living stones that he is making into the house of God. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the prophets and the apostles is the foundation that he is making us into a temple. He's making us into a dwelling place. That he comes, he sees us here, he meets with us here. That's what we're doing in this place, I hope. I hope you don't come to hear preaching. I hope you didn't come to hear a song. I hope you didn't come for the donuts and coffee. I hope you came to see God. To hear his word, to be transformed by your encounter with him. It's my desire for us in worship. But he's saying as you come into this place, you're stirring up one another because the world is hard and you're in war. We get a respite in this place for a moment. The enemy doesn't stop. He continues to bombard us. We get to come together in this place and I can spur you up. I can say, brother, in Jesus Christ, you have everything. The world lies to you and attacks you and it tries to drag you away. I say, no, you He's everything. Don't you understand? Don't you remember? He's faithful. He's not going to stop short. Keep going. Keep going. We encourage one another. You come in here and you've lost. A week full of getting kicked in the teeth. And I say, no, in Jesus, you've got everything. Everything was already lost anyway. It was all going to burn up in the end. You've just stored up more treasure in heaven in Jesus Christ. That's why we don't forsake the gathering together. It's not just to do church. Look, you need to be here. But it's about the one another's. You can do church and never do the one another's. You can come and sit your fanny in this place, hear a sermon, go out of here and never do life with these people. Never spur each other on. Never exhort each other. Never correct each other. Guess what? The one another's hurt too. It's not all roses. The one another's get stepped on their toes. The one another's have to confront sin. The one another's let each other down. But dear friends, it's worth it. He's saying in light of all that Jesus Christ is for you, in light of the fact that you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore, you don't have to bring a bull anymore, you don't have to see a high priest anymore, you look to Jesus Christ and you find everything. In light of that, in light of the fact that he's cleansing you in the middle of all your sin, you gather together and then we spur each other on. That's what we're supposed to do in this place. 
you bring all your gifts into this place and you use them for the building up of the body. That's worship. Coming all for the glory of God, in the presence of God, to the glory of his name, and inviting others in and saying, we have found God. He has called to us in our death, in our darkness. He has called us to life, and he has revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And you can have him too. But they look to us, and we go, well, you know, my team made the playoffs, so we can't go this week. And the worship set's not really for me. And that preacher last week, he said, hell. I did, by the way, and I didn't mean it to be offensive. I know I misused it. I don't take hell lightly. But dear friends, you will find any manner of reasons not to gather together. The devil will use any manner of reasons to keep you from coming to a place that you can be spurred on, that you can spur others on, and that you can meet with the living God. Can you do it alone? Yeah. But there is something that happens when God's people come together because he calls us to do it. He wouldn't tell us to do it if there was no purpose. He wouldn't tell us to continue gathering together if it was just, hey, you want to just go to your shower, go to your car, go to your cubicle, just go worship me however you see fit. It's going to all be okay in the end. You'll just see each other in heaven. Then you'll be perfect. No more sin to rub against each other. It'll just be easier, right? But I praise God for this. I praise God for you guys. I praise God that we get to do this. Friends, it is a glorious thing to do life with fellow saints striving hard after the living God. Fellow saints being transformed by the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray you fill us in. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, I feel the need to say this every week. I thank you that you do not strike us dead when we misspeak. Father, as I stand and I pray now, I think of the the stupidity that's come out of my mouth at times, Father, the times that I've just, I've just trampled all over the truth in fits of emotion or excitement or zeal. Father, I thank you that you don't strike us dead in those moments. I thank you that you still welcome us in because it's not about our performance. It's not about our abilities. It's not about anything in and of us. It is only in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that he lives to make intercession for us now, Father, that even in our weakness, in our sin, that you're receiving our prayers, you're continuing to pour your new mercies into our life day after day after day. And Father, it is our desire that you would uh, you'd be glorified as a result of what happened this night. In these moments and every moment that comes after, Father, that you would be so very glorified by the words of our lips and the meditations of our hearts. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.